Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Mason from the Department of Geography and Environment. Welcome to this uh, public lecture, which is a, a joint LSC Sustainability and Department of Geography and Environment public lecture. I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, the title, The Power of Zero in Driving Breakthrough Catalysm. Uh, the speaker, uh, John Alkington, who I sure uh, perhaps uh, most of you, if not all of you, know who uh, John is. But for those, those of you who don't, I have a biography here, but it's a couple of pages long. So perhaps I'll just highlight the uh, uh, key responsibilities uh, for John. John is a founding partner and executive chairman of Volans. Uh, that's from t uh, 2008, it says here, which is a, uh, a new sort of, uh, it says future-oriented company at the uh, interface of sustainability and entrepreneurship. Um, John's uh, profile, for those who know, is very much in the corporate social responsibility area. Um, John's one of the leading CSR, uh, both spokespersons and practitioners in the world, I would argue. John co-founded uh, Sustainability in 1957. has been a member of Sustainability since then. He remains a non-executive member of the board. He also founded the Environmental Data Services um, in 1978. Um, in 2004, Business Week described John as a dean of the corporate responsibility movement for three decades. I want to mention something which is in the biography. It might seem minor. Um, his first involvement in the field was raising money for the World Wildlife Fund, then newly formed in 1961, aged 11 from small acorns. Yeah? Um, John's here to talk mainly about his experience in relation to a recent book called The Zero Noughts, uh, Breaking the Sustainability Barrier. When I first saw that title, I, in my head anyway, this is a cultural reference which some of you might miss. I was thinking of uh, Captain Scarlet, the Mr. Ron's, Thunderbirds, all those wonderful Jerry Anderson series when I was young. But anyway, what, what's that got to do with uh, sustainability? Um, Maybe nothing, but at least for me, when I was young, looking at those wonderful puppet series about people that wanted to change the world and thought about the world in this cosmopolitan ethos. You know, we are not divided by borders. We are, have a shared humanity, although there were puppets. Um, I felt that. So anyway, the Zero Noughts, Breaking the Stability Barrier, is about a new breed of innovators joined together by an ethos of getting to zero in the face of key uh, substantial challenges to humanity and to the planet. Uh, uh, the book talks about pushing towards zero in the areas of population growth, pandemic risk, poverty, pollution, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, one of the uh, things that John's ever been short of is ambition, and I think it's uh, uh, something that uh, to applaud the, the breadth of that ambition and the creativity in bringing an understanding to very, very difficult issues which uh, many shy away from and doing so in a way which is articulated in a language which many can understand. I know those of you who are students sometimes complain about the technical jargon in the lectures or the seminars of your tutors uh, you certainly won't have any problem understanding difficult ideas conveyed with a, a wonderful 
sort of uh, uh, simple expression in John's books. Um, so with that, that's enough for me perhaps. With that, I hope you can all join me in welcoming John to the LSE for tonight's public lecture. Good evening, uh, everyone. Um, and I just, in addition to thanking Michael for that introduction, I should just say something to the front bench uh, this evening. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Martin, for your hospitality. Uh, and also to uh, two people just down here. One is flashing at me at the moment. Um, uh, <laughs> Sam Larker, who's worked with me now for uh, seven years. She moved with me to uh, Volance about five years ago. But before that was a sustainability. And Jeff Kendall, who is uh, still at sustainability. Uh, bless you. Right, I'm going to speak for about 35, 40 minutes, if that's all right. That's what I've been asked to do. And then we'll uh, hopefully have a reasonable amount of time for uh, questions. Uh, you can make comments, you can ask questions, you can throw uh, abuse at me. I'm reasonably tolerant. Sally oh, dear. Um, um, I'm going to start, and I'm going to mainly use slides, um, and we'll see how that goes. It starts. So, a, a public health warning. Um, I'm suddenly aware that I'm standing between some people and sides. Can you, am, am I between, I'm between, what do I do about that? So, I mean, I, I'm very much between these people and their ability to see. One thing you can do is perhaps move this. You think it's a right, yeah, it's, but that's for you, but I'm, is it okay? I'm just trying to not get away without having to do the, 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 the speech, but that, that's fine. So the public health warning is this. Um, one of the reasons I moved from sustainability is I like, as an individual, to be in places, and I was just saying uh, next door a moment ago, I, I, I like not to know what I'm doing. And you may see some fairly uh, strong evidence of that um, uh, this evening. So I like to push the boundary. I like to uh, be in spaces where people are still trying to make up uh, what it is that um, the agenda should be. And Kurt Vonnegut's uh, quotation here, which I, I won't read out, just for me uh, captures the spirit of much of what we uh, try and do. But we don't quite go as far as um, uh, Fe uh, uh, Felix Baumgartner when he jumped out of that uh, balloon uh, last uh, year. Interestingly, though, as he came down, you will know, he broke the, the sound barrier. He's the first... Uh, uh, person to break the sound barrier without an aircraft uh, around him. And we make the, 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 the connection between uh, the efforts to break the sound barrier in the 1940s and our current efforts to break uh, the sustainability uh, barrier. And in many ways, uh, if you go back to the late 1940s, people said then, people who were expert in physics said there's no way you're going to get a, a, a plane through uh, the sound barrier. In the end, Chuck Yeager uh, got through, and the same was true with people who said, no, no one's going to run uh, the, uh, a mile faster than four minutes. Physiologists uh, would have told you uh, that then. Uh, and then Roger Bannister got through in 1954. And within something like 18 months, another 16 people got through. So uh, time and again, these barriers turn out to be uh, within our own brains. I was in Mumbai about three days ago, and I started... Uh, with this slide, uh, the, the, the group that I was working with there called CRY, Child Rights and You. Uh, and they deal with uh, children, street children uh, in particular. Uh, and they made the point that every year in India, 26 million children are born. By the end of the uh, couple of days there, we were concluding that India's young people really are the 
globes uh, young people, the world's young people. If we don't sort out things in countries like that, uh, we really are going to pay uh, a global price. And I put this child up simply because she was born and adopted by the UN as uh, the seven billionth uh, human being on this planet. But I, just in the, the small text underneath it, you will see uh, the projections. Eight billion by 2025, nine billion uh, by 2043. I have to say, when I was born in 1949, there were less than three billion people on this planet of ours. Uh, I, I worry about the population uh, trajectories uh, considerably, and we may well come back to that uh, in discussion. Joyously, all my numbers have gone wrong in the transfer from the mem memory stick, but if you'll believe me that this should have been run one to five, uh, that will be helpful. I'm going to say a few words of uh, introduction in addition to what Michael has kindly said already. I'm going to talk about the, the agenda as we, we see it um, developing uh, this year. I'm going to talk about a slight sort of uh, tension that's evolved in this uh, 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 space between Michael Porter and Mark Kramer with their shared value uh, proposition uh, and uh, our own approach around uh, double, triple bottom lines, blended value, and so on. A little bit about social innovation and then about where, uh, something about where capitalism may be taking us next. So just to add to what... Um, You've already heard. I should that the eel is there, simply that uh, you've been told that in 1961 I went out and raised money for uh, World Wildlife Fund. Uh, the reason I did that was several years previously I'd found myself pitch dark in the middle of a field in Northern Ireland, surrounded by eels, um, and putting my hands down and feeling these things slithering between my uh, fingers and just having one of these mad moments where everything started to wobble. And I came out feeling um, a connection. Even at the age of five or six, I knew about the Sargasso Sea and so on. The reason why the passport is there is that when I go through uh, immigration, as I did in uh, Mumbai a few days back, and they ask me, what do you do? I really struggle to put a, a, a label, a meaningful one, on what I do. Yes, I have set up uh, a number of companies. Mercifully, they're all still touch wood on their feet, uh, and that's over now 36 years. We work primarily, as you've been told, with uh, the business community, and that's a lot of big companies. It's a lot of financial institutions. It's also a lot of social entrepreneurs and, 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 and um, non-governmental uh, organizations. And I sit on, uh, I think it's insane, but I think it's about 23 or 24 boards or advisory boards, and they range from very big companies that you may not like, like Nestle, right through to a bunch of uh, social entrepreneurs and uh, NGOs and so on, who I'm sure you would like a lot better. And then books and, and, and a number of uh, relationships with universities. So the, the book that I'll be talking about this evening is uh, uh, the, the, the most recent one uh, called The Zero Noughts, but, but it sits on the shoulders of a number of other ones that um, uh, we've done. Cannibals with Forks that came out in 1997 introduced the notion of the triple bottom line. Um, the Power of Unreasonable People, The Power of Unreasonable People, which came out in 2008, I did with uh, Pamela Hartigan, who was then a managing director at the World Economic Forum, now runs the Skull Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University at the Said Business School, looked at social entrepreneurs and what business can uh, learn from those people. 
And then the reason why uh, Puma are on the right-hand side is the, the book that I'm... If, I, if I'm looking pale and peaky, it's because I've written 60,000 words in the last 10 days. And um, it's slightly getting on uh, top of me. And that, that's this new book with uh, Jochen Zeitz, who until very recently was uh, CEO uh, of Puma. And some of you may know that at, while at Puma, he introduced this new environmental profit and loss uh, accounting methodology developed with PricewaterhouseCoopers and TrueCost uh, and, and really quite his competitors and many of his colleagues were quite surprised when um, in 2011 Puma announced the re- first, re- first round results of that accounting methodology uh, which uh, tracked environmental footprint issues throughout Puma's uh, 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 supply chain and the number, the financial number that went on to those impacts were for 2010 alone 145 million euros. And that year, that was half of uh, uh, Puma's uh, profits. So I'll come back a bit to that in a moment. The reason why the, why the, the Heifer logo is there is that it, what's weird at the moment is you've got um, people like Jochen Zeitz, who's now co-president with Richard Branson, and I'll talk about this in a moment, of the new B team, which launches on the 1st uh, of February in New York, which is in effect a business-led NGO. And at the same time, you've got NGOs who are trying to sort of find the ways to engage uh, business much more uh, strategically. So I was in Little Rock about uh, five or six weeks ago with Heifer International, and it was their first ever corporate summit, and they were trying to get companies to come in alongside uh, the development, international development work uh, that that organization uh, does. So when I think about the work that, that my colleagues and I have done over the last sort of 40 years or, or, or so, Um, This man has been a towering figure uh, in the background, but not one that we terribly agreed with uh, much of the time. Milton Friedman, as you know, um, uh, used to say, uh, uh, the business of business is business. Uh, When I was in in, in Mumbai, one of the CEOs of a company called Marico stood up and said, um, the business of business is more than business. And and, if if I had to sort of uh, put a bit of language around that, that does uh, quite well. And there's this spectrum between people who are more or less Friedmanite in their view of capitalism, i.e. the only thing is to let markets rip, and a bunch of other people who say actually capitalism is in many ways uh, deeply flawed, almost irredeemable, uh, and CSR, corporate social responsibility, is a bit like putting uh, lipstick on a pig. Well, we can discuss that, if you like, uh, in a moment. Um, and in, in, in a way, trying to explain this about um, 20 years ago, I got Ingram Pinn of the Financial Times to do the cartoon on the left. It's a really poor quality um, uh, 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 copy because I had to go back onto the Internet to find it uh, today. But the attempt there, what we were trying to do, this was 1992, was to spell out what we thought corporate boardrooms would increasingly need to do. And so what we were saying is the fish is there to represent the natural world, the, the woman in the middle is there because there is this extreme poverty in different parts of the world. That needs to be represented as well. And the robot is there to represent the longer-term future. You may see on his shoulder, this is almost back to Thunderbirds perhaps, but you may see on his shoulder 2001. That, that was a time when 2001 still seemed a long time uh, into uh, the future. Uh, the reason why um, the other guy is there, uh, James Bond, is because... Uh, Very often, I find, we find ourselves in boardrooms around the world having to deal with very senior people in business. And I've often said, 
you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating to be in those uh, sorts of places, talking to those sorts of people. In many ways, it's a, a privilege. But I've always envied James Bond because the one thing he knows to do when he gets into the command center, the control room of Goldfinger or Dr. No, he always knows which button to press, and I never do. And so there's a great deal of fumbling uh, going on before we uh, work out a way uh, forward. Um, Behind all of this, one of the things that we started to do in 1994 at Sustainability was to try and map uh, some of the, uh, the broader trends. This is particularly in the global north. This is the OECD uh, world primarily, but you find echo effects in other parts uh, of the world to map the societal pressure waves that impacted first government, then business, now financial markets. And I won't go into this in any great uh, detail, simply to say that there have been uh, we believe, a series of wave structures. The first one was very much focused on environment. Uh, it came up um, 69 to 72, 73. It forced a whole series of uh, political and regulatory approaches. So the Environmental Protection Agency uh, was set up in 1970. And through the down waves, which is where much of the useful work gets done, uh, you had a series of similar environment ministries and agencies set up around the world. The second wave, which is from about 88 to 91, was very different. In the first one, business was forced onto the defensive. It was being told by regulators to do things it didn't want to do. So basically, you had a pretty grudging, compliance-oriented set of responses. The second wave basically uh, uh, just cut right the way through that because suddenly consumers woke up to the fact that they could bring pressure to bear on business through uh, particularly uh, retailers, uh, supermarkets uh, uh, specifically. And in 1988, with a a colleague, Julia Hales, I wrote a book called uh, The Green Consumer Guide. And to our absolute bewilderment, that uh, book sold uh, one million copies in 18 months. It went into 20 foreign editions. And we just caught this wave that was uh, building around uh, the world and helped to a degree uh, to focus it. Second down wave, very different. Uh, This time, you've had a whole series of voluntary uh, management standards and initiatives around the world, Um, uh, things like ISO 14000, AA1000, the Global Reporting Initiative, these sorts of things. Uh, Business was volunteering to a degree, so going beyond compliance to do new things. Third wave started to build, hacked back by the events of 9-11. That third wave uh, was very much focused on the globalization or anti-globalization agenda. Uh, We now think that we've been in a way that's been building now for about uh, four or five years, uh, very much focused on the language of sustainability, and I'll come on to that. Uh, Where we go next, anyone's guess, but I'm happy to discuss it uh, in the uh, discussion uh, period. But... Every so often you see a magazine cover that just crystallizes out something that seems to be happening uh, in the wider world. And some of you may well have seen this. In fact, many of you may have seen this. This was um, uh, Business Week's front cover just after Superstorm uh, uh, Sandy hit uh, New York and the American East Coast. Uh, And you all know that Michael Bloomberg owns Bloomberg and a mayor of New York and uh, actually remarkably intelligent man for uh, a politician and, 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 and a business leader. But um, this is his attempt and the attempt of Business Week to basically say something is uh, changing out there whether you like it uh, or not. Um, now let me just say a little bit quickly about the agenda and what, what we see there. So um, sustainability as the organization and GlobeScan, which is a Toronto-based polling agency, have recently done two 
uh, studies. If you're interested in more detail, Jeff Kendall, I'm sure, can uh, uh, answer some questions in, in, in the discussion period. But the first one uh, uh, interviewed about 23,000 people, uh, well, 24,000 people around the world in the countries shown. It's a very interesting contrast there, Greece and Turkey, India and Pakistan, uh, and so on. And, and the findings, I won't go into any detail. Incidentally, if anyone wants these slides, you can, you can have them. Um, uh, but these um, results, I think, show very stark contrasts between the global north and the global south. So in the global north, what you'll find is that companies, whether they're global or national, are, f- are fundamentally not uh, trusted. And that, that was after a period of, 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 of growing levels of trust. But the recessionary period, the downwave, has really impacted that quite profoundly. By contrast, if you look at the global south, the emerging economies, uh, it's a rather different um, uh, picture. And and the two areas where where there is trust, NGOs, not surprisingly, that's been a sustained trend over time. But look at the scientists' uh, um, uh, score. It's very much higher uh, than it is um, even in in, in the global south. I just sometimes wish uh, we would listen to these people. Um, And then the next study was um, of 1,600 experts in corporate social responsibility and sustainability uh, around the world. And um, this is a complex chart to read, and therefore I won't ask you to read it. All I'll do is direct you to the top right-hand corner, the one with the red bar uh, at the top. And I'm not even going to ask you to read the different um, uh, bullet points and, 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 and labels attached, but simply to say, if you'd done something like this 20 years ago, you might have had two or three uh, major priorities up into that high-priority, difficult-to-achieve uh, box. You've now got quite a number, and more and more of these are drifting uh, up to that top-right uh, domain. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that this isn't any longer just a single issue uh, uh, agenda. It's very much about a systemic crisis that we uh, 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 increasingly face. And it's not just us saying this. So some of you will have seen the World Economic Forum's um, uh, global risk study that was published just about three days ago. Uh, I see one or two nodding heads um, around the uh, audience. And... I just wanted to pick out a few points that come through. I mean, if you haven't been in there, it's a, it's a really very interesting interactive online uh, environment. I recommend it very uh, highly. But the top two risks that they identify, first one is, is the wealth gaps uh, around the world, um, and the second is this sort of cascading of unsustainable public sector debt uh, to future generations. Uh, both of those that, that, that they spotlight. But in third place they see climate change coming up very, very strongly. And what's interesting is in the, the commentary, they say that the problem that we see now increasingly around the world is those top two risks and the challenges that they represent are getting in the way of dealing with the third uh, uh, layer of, of, of climate uh, change. So um, what we've seen in Rio plus 20 or the Doha uh, uh, meetings have been an example of that. Two other uh, issues that they flag up, and then both of them to do with viral spread of challenges. The first is pandemics. We're, we're now an urban species. Pandemic risk is a growing threat, and not just flu. Um, we're not managing that one particularly uh, well. And then these digital wildfires. That, if you remember, you know, videos that go uh, viral around the world um, or YouTube. Uh, uh, um, uh, shorts uh, on, on Islam or whatever. S- these sorts of things are going to be increasingly taxing 
uh, for, for, for both governments, but particularly for business. So what is underlying all of this? And, and, and the GlobeScan sustainability uh, teams uh, put together um, this slide, which tracks what the 1,600 experts said around the world. And, and fundamentally, it seemed to be a lack of political will. And then it, it twinned with that is this fight back by uh, vested uh, interests. And so, for example, with the shootings in um, Connecticut just before Christmas, you will all have seen the National Rifle Association doing its bit to keep guns on sale uh, across the United States. Well, the National Rifle Association is just one of the organizations uh, that does this sort of uh, work. Again, the numbers have gone slightly berserk, uh, but um, Rio Plus 20, uh, did, did anyone go to Rio Plus 20? Nope. Uh, well, I never go to these things. I, I mean, I, I, I steer as far away from them as I possibly can. I went to the first one in 1972, the Stockholm one, but um, for a number of reasons, I find them uh, impossible. But this one was a particularly lousy uh, event. People who went said that the, the peripheral, uh, the, the sort of the side events were, were great fun, very interesting. They met some wonderful people. But the outcome was, in, in the context of the challenges that we face, uh, uh, disappointment is to put too weak a word on it. But what was really interesting was to see whose voice communicated this time round. And they were primarily business voices. So there were people like Peter Backer, who's now president of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, a, a, a consortium of 200-plus um, companies uh, around the world. He used to be CEO of TNT. Uh, he told me just late last year that he expects to lose 15%, 10 to 15% of his corporate members because of what he's now pushing them towards. And I'm going to touch on that in a moment. Paul Pullman of Unilever, who's the man who basically told financial analysts who are not interested in uh, long-term investment to get stuffed and, and, and bugger off. I'm, it's my language, not his, but basically saying, um, you know, if, you, if you're investing in the short term, we don't want your money. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Pavan Sukdev, who used to be a managing director of um, uh, Deutsche Bank, who's just done the Economics of uh, Ecosystems and Biodiversity Study and the Future of Economics. Jochen Zeitz, I've also already mentioned. What is encouraging is that although the Millennium Development Goals, with their focus on poverty, are, are coming to uh, their expiry date in, in 2015, a new set of, as you perhaps know, Sustainable Development Goals are being put together, very much with the, the economic, social, environmental dimensions in mind. I really do hope that, in addition, they embrace the governance uh, component, going back to that lack of political will uh, piece. So let me just say a, thing of, uh, a few things about um, the shared value uh, uh, versus the rest uh, uh, agenda, which is uh, slightly top of mind for us at the moment. So in, in 1994, when we came up with the notion of the triple bottom line, economic, social, and environmental, value-added or destroyed, uh, in 1995, we came up with the twinned idea of people, planet, and profit, or uh, prosperity. So th th these were bottom lines. From that came the double bottom line. From that came blended value, a bunch of different things. If you look around the world, uh, I, w when I was in India, I was asked, can you give us one example of one company that is, in a sense, almost the gold standard uh, for you in this sort of space? And I had to say, well, th there's one company that stands out for me. It's the Danish healthcare company, 
although I, I should declare an interest, we've, we've worked with them for about uh, 25 years. When we first started, uh, and, and, and at that time we were a damn nuisance for them. The Green Consumer Guide was a real problem uh, for a part of their business, their in, industrial enzymes uh, business. But what I've seen that company do since then has been quite extraordinary. They're one of the very few uh, companies that has formally recharted itself around a triple uh, bottom line uh, agenda. And anyone interested in, in, in seeing a bit more about what they do, they've published a 20-year uh, survey in time for the Rio Plus 20 um, uh, summit. And, and, but it's no longer just uh, a company like Nova Nordisk. I think the whole sort of B Corporation movement that's building very powerfully in the United States uh, at the moment is fascinating. And you see companies like Ben & Jerry's now uh, re-registering themselves uh, as B Corps. Uh, very encouraging um, trend. And, and then many of you will have read the uh, 2011 Harvard Business Review article by uh, uh, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer. Brilliant piece of analysis. I think a really uh, excellent um, effort to um, basically professionalize the leading edge of corporate social responsibility. It's had a really uh, very positive uh, influence on, on the way companies view all of this. But uh, Mike Porter was at a, an event I was with at about 18 months ago and said a couple of things in public which really worried me. And the first was creating shared value or shared value, which is their, their proposition, he felt replaced all of corporate social responsibility. I think it's a very clever rebranding of the leading edge of corporate social responsibility. But he also said it replaced sustainability in his mind. And I think if you stand back from the shared value proposition, which is that companies can increasingly do social innovation and, and, and social value creation in, in a way that makes strategic and financial sense within their current business models, that's, that's, that's useful, that's important, but that's still, uh, for me at least, a win-win set of outcomes. It doesn't properly, I don't think, um, and automatically address the need for system change. So the second bullet point comes again from the 1,600 experts. And it's just quite striking that three-quarters of those people around the world said system change is now what we're having to deal with, not incremental change, uh, system uh, change. I won't go through the final bullet point. It's just a, our attempt to uh, explain what it is that we do actually have to do. A few words now quickly, and I see various people in the audience who are in the social uh, innovation, social entrepreneurship uh, space. And um, this is a slide that one of uh, our colleagues, Shami uh, uh, and Love, our CEO, put together a couple of years back. And it was an attempt then to uh, capture some of the trends that I have already uh, described, but, but put other things in the mix. And really basically plots the journey, as many companies describe it, that they've taken that takes them from the point where they just reject anything to do with these sorts of agendas uh, to the point where they embrace them. That's captured by the growing range of function, functions uh, uh, involved uh, in all of this. Now, you could choose to put a range of different tags in the um, final bubble. It could be sustainability. It could be uh, uh, social enterprise. It could be uh, shared, shared value. But, but social innovation, I think, is an important term, and we covered elements of that in a recent uh, report, the, the Future Quotient, which will be available free uh, outside. But one of, the, one of the diagrams that we put in that report uh, is shown here, and many of you will be aware of the innovation uh, curve, uh, where people get very enthusiastically involved in a new space. They think it's going to grow uh, very, very rapidly. 
Our sense increasingly, and since we published this report about 18 months ago, uh, there's been a great deal of recognition in the business world where we primarily work, that this is where we are. So there's an immense amount of talk about these agendas, um, but uh, the action is uh, not going nearly fast enough. So what do we need to do? How do we move from incremental to systemic uh, change? Well, I think we have to um, uh, broaden our scope. We have to deepen our analysis, which is an appropriate thing to say in an institution like LSE. We've got to raise our ambitions. And I think one of the things that Paul Pullman of Unilever did alongside uh, uh, telling uh, uh, analysts uh, uh, what he thought of them was to publish his 2020 targets. So a doubling of the revenues or the value created by the company by 2020 and a halving of their environmental footprint over that same time scale. For me, that, that, that is an example of a reasonably stretched uh, target. At the same time, you see this new wave of uh, uh, interest in, in, in integrated uh, reporting, growing numbers of companies uh, around the world trying to pull all of the different elements of their accounting and reporting together into a single uh, document. Very often, these are multiple reports, more or less uh, forced together, stapled uh, together. But the International Integrated Reporting Council is driving change, in, uh, I think, in very useful ways. And this just simply uh, captures the fact, this slide, that it's no longer simply about financial capital, financial uh, value added, but there are multiple forms of capital uh, that increasingly are having to be um, captured, including uh, human, social, and natural uh, capital. At the same time, if you look around the world, and, and, and I really put this slide together for uh, India just to sort of encourage them, um, one of the things that you see is an immense amount of innovation going on in the sort of base or bottom of the pyramid uh, domain and very different products being uh, developed now by social entrepreneurs but also by uh, larger companies. And many of those, over time, many of those products will flash across into the global uh, north and I think very useful ways. And again, I, I, I rec recommend both of these uh, books if you haven't uh, read them. Final set of uh, slides around this notion of breakthrough capitalism. So I love the Occupy uh, movement. I think it was a wonderful way of getting people involved, which it did, of tempering some of them, giving them an experience of what uh, real-world world politics uh, are like. The uh, Occupy movement, I think, is going through almost a sort of rethink, to some degree, a rebranding um, uh, exercise. But I, I, a lot of people I meet in business at the moment are saying, Occupy's dead. It didn't have very much of an influence. I beg to differ. I, th I think that the mobilization of young people and multi-generational uh, um, uh, 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 initiatives actually were immensely uh, important, and I don't think we've remotely seen the end of that. And one of the ways that we're trying to carry uh, elements of that uh, forward is through a series of what we call breakthrough capitalism forums. The reason why this sort of rather dotty uh, figure is there, he's Joseph Schumpeter, as many of you will recognize. He was the economist who talked about gales of creative destruction. Uh, many people think we're in a one, a single dip, double dip, triple dip, you uh, pick the label, uh, recession. We don't think we're in a double or triple dip recession. Well, we are, but it's superimposed on something much more fundamental. We think, it, we, we think we're in one of those moments. Every uh, two lifetimes or so, the, the global economy goes into a period of convulsive change, and we think that that's where uh, we're headed, which sounds jolly, doesn't it? But I mean, if we're going to have any chance of uh, dealing with the big issues, the systemic issues that we uh, face, 
uh, we've got to acknowledge that that's where we are and we've got to be able to play into all of that. So this is just a couple of years back. This was the World Economic Forum basically saying, this is the world as we see it. Now, anyone who goes on to the global risks uh, platform uh, now will see even more structured and, and busy mapping. But this looks like a Gordian knot to me. And, and, and if you're in a boardroom or you're in the global C-suite, as we would call it, uh, what you'll see here is a couple of... Uh, points jumping out immediately, Ec economic disparity again, and the global governance uh, failures, both, both key points. In the latest uh, version of this mapping, which I was only showed for the first time uh, today, there are about half a dozen of these factors. So either that's a better capture, or it suggests things are getting even more complicated. So what did Alexander do with the Gordian knot? He sliced through it with a, a sword, and that's what we've been trying to do uh, with the zero knots, with this sort of zero-based uh, targeting approach. None of this is new. Many of you will uh, remember the late uh, Ray Anderson uh, of Interface. He's somebody who embraced the zero agenda a long time ago. Uh, he had a mission zero. The company still uh, um, uh, embraces that agenda and pushes it forward. When I spoke to him about two months before he died, um, he said that they were already 60% along the road to uh, zero. Some companies have actually got even even further, and one of, the, one of the companies really weirdly, I find, uh, in the United States is Free-to-Lay, which now on 34 plants has is, is got to zero on uh, waste to uh, landfill uh, and is doing it in other areas uh, as well. So this is a, 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 an exercise that we got involved in um, uh, the year before last, I think it was sort of 2011. Uh, so Greenpeace launched uh, their detox campaign very clever uh, uh, campaign to sort of split apart the sportswear uh, uh, companies and get them to compete with each other to declare uh, uh, the stretch targets. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Adidas, uh, Nike, Puma, these sorts of companies really dived in and started to declare these stretch uh, targets. And then they woke, had one of these horrible wake-up moments. They thought, well, here we've declared the targets. But we know that if we go into China, we're relatively small in terms of the manufacturing facilities that many of us operate in. And China doesn't terribly like being told what to do. So is there some way that we can convene? Which wasn't what Greenpeace originally had in mind. So Nike got uh, three organizations, four of the future sustainability and ourselves, to come together and pull 30 uh, people from the different brands over three days into a consortium. One of the things we didn't expect was to get to the end of that process and have a set of zero-based targets. But that's exactly what came out of it, a roadmap uh, uh, to zero discharges of hazardous chemicals by 2020. Now, I don't know whether that will work, but I'm excited about it because it's an example of pre-competitive work by competitive companies uh, to address a really critical uh, issue. We've been convening these people, so with Deloitte Innovation, we did the first Zero Notes uh, Symposium in Rotterdam last year. We'll repeat that uh, later this year. The uh, Thunderbirds character up on the left-hand side is uh, Peter Backer of WPCSD, who also appears in this slide. And this slide is uh, WPCSD's attempt a few years back to capture this agenda, this space, out to the 2050s. I won't go through it in any great detail. I mean, as I say, you can, you, you can have, if, if you search for Vision 2050 uh, uh, on the internet, this will uh, come up. What's extraordinary, I find, 
is that Peter Back, having come in, looks at this stuff and says, well, actually, there's some stretched targets in there. There are plenty of zeros up towards the top end. But he thinks it's too conservative. He thinks it's too staid. And so basically, he's formed a strategic relationship with the Stockholm Resilience uh, Center. And as you know, uh, the Stockholm Resilience Center focuses on planetary boundaries, nine of them. So um, climate change is one of them. Species loss is another. Nitrogen uh, enrichment of shallow waters is another. All three of those we've already uh, overshot on. You can see those three in the little diagram at the top. And, and many of the others are trending in the wrong direction. Um, so I think uh, WBCSD is uh, an organization to watch. But I just go back to where I started. Where are we in all of this? And I don't think, I mean, you're quite right, Michael, to say that uh, much of my career is, has been described by others as in the corporate social responsibility space. That's a bunch of what I have indeed uh, done. But it's also been about sustainability, and I have never felt that sustainability is the same as corporate social responsibility. CSR is one part of the journey towards true sustainability. Sustainability is about system change, and I go back to the earlier uh, metaphor of the sound barrier, or in this case, uh, the sustainability barrier. Now, I mentioned Richard Branson earlier on. I mean, some people find him um, a challenge and, 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 and difficult to work alongside. I, I, from a safe distance, I admire him uh, a good deal. Uh, he's, some of you may have read the Economist piece a few months back where the B team was first uh, referenced. Um, it launches, as I said, in New York uh, in a few weeks. Uh, Richard is on the left. Jochen Zeitz, who's co-president, is on the right. Um, what Richard is known for is some of the really stretched things he's done in the social space. So not just the uh, Virgin Galactic shooting rich people up into space. Uh, and just in case you think that's a spurious effort, I mean, one of the things that really struck me, I've met a number of astronauts. One of them is on our advisory board, Jerry Linninger, uh, who is both an astronaut and a cosmonaut. And uniformly, people who were shot up into space came back transformed. In Jerry's case, he was on the Mir space station for five months, so he did 40 million uh, miles. He came back transformed. So if, if, if Branson can finally shoot a lot of wealthy people up into space, I think that may be uh, a good thing. But a little bit more seriously, what, what the B team are doing is saying, we're convening CEOs, but unlike WBCSD, we're not going to convene those people as uh, representatives of their companies, we're going to re uh, convene them as citizens. So they can bring the resources of their companies to bear if they want to, but they're here as people. And we then want them, uh, people like Arianne Huffington, Paul Pullman, Ratan Tata, Mo Ibrahim, these sorts of people, to bring their priorities to the table and then work out uh, collectively how we build teams around that and how we really stretch uh, um, our, our collective performance. And it looks as though the first uh, one of the uh, uh, objectives will, will be to tackle the environmental profit and loss methodology and how that goes from Puma and their holding group, PPR, which owns Balenciaga, Gucci, Stella McCartney, Alexander McQueen, 21 brands like that. How do you take it beyond PPR out into business uh, as a whole? Final slide. Uh, in a sense, you know, I, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I probably uh, should, but um, I read in Harvard Business Review a blog at least the other day that said resolutions are a waste of time. So um, instead, what I do is put up uh, some, some things that we will be working on. We, uh, one of the reasons I look slightly ragged in addition to the book is the report that we're just finishing off, which will go to the 
uh, designers uh, end of next week. This wall chart came from the first Breakthrough Capitalism Forum that we held in uh, May in London. It looks as though uh, we will also be holding similar forums this year in Toronto uh, and in Berlin, uh, possibly in Singapore as well. And then we're doing a sort of lab format where we're either going into companies or, or, or into different spaces. We did a, we did a, a separate uh, stream at the recent Good Deals uh, conference, really to stretch people's thinking to, to address this breakthrough capitalism uh, agenda. So that's where we are. Uh, I'd love to know where you are. Um, and uh, if I can hand back to you, uh, Michael, and just say thank you very much for your attention. And I'm at your disposal. Um, thank you. We have at least a good half an hour um, for questions. Uh, we have some roving microphones at the ready. What I propose is I will take rounds of questions, perhaps three questions each round. When um, you ask your question, please could you, I think it would be helpful to identify who you are and um, try and keep your question concise if possible. Thank you. So let's go for the first three questions. I have one here on the front row. There's uh, a cluster. There is. <laughs> we'll start <laughs> with the cluster on the right. Then I'll come back, perhaps. And the gentleman behind in the green jumper and at the back. So we'll do those three first, OK? Over to you. Thanks. Yeah, hello. Thank you very much. My name is Heide Rieder from Bain & Company. Um, you touched a little bit upon the responsibilities of everybody as a citizen. I was wondering, what do you think... An, an average citizen in London could do to maximize this impact on a global scale? Because there's so many things you could do, poverty reduction, education, like how would you think about prioritizing where yeah. you can get the most impact? That's Thank you very question. much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Clément. I'm a student in uh, public affairs. I did my first year at Sciences Po and second year at LSE. Uh, from what I understand, part of your activities is to educate people, so I would like to understand what has been your biggest failure in convincing people and why? How many do you want? All right. Good God. <laughs> Hi, my name is Greg. I'm from the United States, and I've actually done work with a congresswoman back at home as well as a Labor Party uh, member of parliament here. And what you said about shared values I think is critical and key uh, to forming political will. And what I'm curious about is have have you or have the people you've worked with begin lobbying um, politicians in the U.S. or in the United Kingdom? And if you have or if you want to, how do you plan on doing that? Okay. Uh, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know, I, I, I feel I should stand up. Does, is this microphone picking up my voice if I speak at this sort of level? No? Um, maybe just... This is exciting. Um, let me just uh, start with the, the, the last one, because um, I worked in, uh, with government agencies in the 1970s, and I have to say there's something about me which I, I have antibodies to the world of politics and government. And so, for example, I worked for seven years inside the European uh, Commission. I met some wonderful people. I, you know, wonderful conversations. But when I looked at the end of those seven years and w what a change as a result, the answer was very, 
little indeed. And so the, uh, if we have a theory of change, it is in part that governments at the moment are locked in and are finding it very difficult to do what they very often know that they should be doing. One of the reasons is that business is lobbying or parts of business is lobbying against uh, change. One of the things I think we increasingly have to do is to get business on side to the point where the voices of the people who have uh, a, a more stretch agenda are heard more effectively. And you've seen some of that happening both in the UK and the United States uh, with the climate change agenda groups of uh, companies being convened very often by uh, organizations like the World Resources Institute or, or, or Cambridge University um, here. But our feeling is that increasingly we have to engage the political realm, realm much more effectively. And when I looked at the, 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 the roster of speakers, 26 of them, and the people we got in the Breakthrough Capitalism Forum, almost by design, very few people from government there. Now, I, I think we can't do that a second time uh, round. So I, there will be people in the, the room, and many of our colleagues work uh, very much more assiduously with uh, the politi political world, but, but, but that's not where we at the moment choose to focus um, our, 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 our attention. To the role of the citizen, um, uh, I think the citizen has many different ways, uh, at least potentially, of, of affecting the global um, uh, agenda. And one of the extraordinary things about London as a, 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 as a city and also as a, an economy is how many organizations, NGOs, uh, private sector, uh, companies, consultancies, university departments, and so on, who, that are located in this city who do extraordinary things um, uh, in different parts of the world on, on, on the sorts of issues that we're uh, discussing uh, this evening. The really weird thing, though, is how few of them know each other terribly well. I mean, if you go back 30 years ago, many of them would have done. And now it's sort of, it's almost as been a series of big bangs where one after another of these agendas has just grown like topsy, exploded. And, and, and um, the result of that is new people have been pulled in and, and the, the networking uh, uh, conversations are not as strong as they might be. And that really struck us about... Um, 18 months ago, we convened a set of, with The Guardian, a set of meetings um, in our offices in uh, uh, Bloomsbury. And each time, maybe 25, 40 people came together. And just time and time again, we saw these people hadn't met. And so new conversations were, were starting. So I think citizens um, uh, can get involved by just being part of those organizations, being supporters, being members, if that's um, uh, appropriate. <coughs> I think that there are really important things that we can do um, in our personal lives, but you know, although I talked about the Green Consumer Guide earlier on, I think the, the, the periods of maximum influence of consumers tend to go in waves. There are periods of maybe three or four years where uh, consumers can have a really big uh, impact. Now, if, if I think back to the, the Green Consumer period, um, 88 to 91, 92, we really had some companies on the run. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. We literally had companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever on our doorstep, not trying to strangle each other, but, but, but fighting to be involved in the conversation uh, 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 in some way or other. I think the signals that consumers send by buying particular types of products it might be organic, it might be fair trade, continue to have uh, 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 an influence, but not uh, at quite the level that they once would have 
uh, had. I think as our aging societies um, start to be more obsessed with pensions, for example, um, and I'm going for, from ordinary consumers now to something rather different, one of the things that worries me is that aging societies are very likely to be increasingly conservative uh, societies. And so if you look at the agenda that people like Peter Backer, I mean, Peter's basically saying the world is on fire. Uh, you, you look at Australia at the moment, you look at the United States, it's drought, it's fire, it's floods, it's all sorts of stuff. If you had a more, uh, an older population, then the likelihood is that those people will be really obsessed about their pension and getting the sort of uh, pension uh, returns that they want. They'll be largely invested in incumbent companies, the ones that really sort of are doing the old business, fossil fuels uh, and so on. And I think that there's, a, there's an enormous task ahead of us to wake up people like myself. I'm now 63. You know, I, I hope to uh, work until I drop. But most people I, of my age and off aren't feeling that way. And I see there's a narrowing down of their perspective. And I think there's a massive task to engage those people. If I can come then to the question about worst, I, I, it's really difficult to know where to start. I mean, one of the things about this um, space is that it, it is experimental. You're always having to make things up. I started with the declaration um, that I like to be off balance. I like not to know what I'm doing. That, that increases the risk of failure. Let me just give you maybe a, a um, but you've asked for the worst case. Um, a bad one was when I got Bill, Bill Ford, who was then um, chairman of the Ford Motor Company, to um, own up in public, this is about 15 years ago, to the fact that the product that made most of their money at the time, sport utility vehicles, and if you think about it, at that time, uh, an SUV would make a, a, a net profit to Ford of about $14,000 at a time when they were scraping to make a few cents on many of their smaller cars uh, in Europe. I got him to open up in their first ever sustainability report and say that as far as he was concerned, as a member of the Ford family and somebody who was absolutely vested in the future of that company, he felt SUVs were unsustainable. And I was in Australia when uh, that report hit, not the newsstands, but became public, and he got absolutely whacked by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Uh, they really laid into him. And for about two days, you know, he, was, he was basically being crucified. Um, after that, the, the, the discussion started to go much more uh, positive. I should have thought about that in greater depth. I should have known the American uh, media dynamics uh, far better than um, uh, I did. In his particular case, um, he stuck with it, continues to do uh, so uh, to that day. But I think if you're going to encourage business leaders to put their neck on the block, to, or stick it out at least um, a bit further than they'd normally be comfortable with doing, you really have to do the due diligence to make sure that you uh, protect them as best uh, they can. Because it doesn't make, take many disasters like that for many others people say, what, what an idiot Bill Ford was, I'm never going to do anything uh, uh, like that. Now, I, I could give you plenty of other examples where things haven't gone quite as well. Can I just give one more example? I mentioned Nova Nordisk. Um, and many years ago, we started a process of stakeholder engagement visits to Novo's uh, plants in Denmark. 
they do genetic engineering, uh, uh, among many other things. But that's a core technology. So what we did was to invite really radical greens from Austria, Germany, places like that, into uh, Novo to challenge their, their, their management at close quarters. Great, great idea. First year, it worked brilliantly well. Second year, if you'd scripted the worst disaster doomsday scenario, that's what we got. Because on the, the, the um, evening that the, all, the 12 people arrived, uh, and they included somebody from Greenpeace, um, the worst possible thing happened. On, at that time, 80% of Danes watched the same news program at night. Number one story, accidental release of genetically uh, modified organisms from a Novo Nordisk plant. I mean, you could not have scripted a, a worse outcome. But the, the group sort of got together that evening over a beer, uh, and they said, what are we going to do? Do we uh, call the International Herald Tribune? Do we uh, get back to Greenpeace? Do we launch immediate campaigns? And they didn't do that. They came in the next day and they said to the, the company, why did this happen? What are you doing to make sure it doesn't happen again? Will you treat us almost like a, a, a new group of customers as, as you start to do that, keep us informed? And the initial response of the company was really poor. The man who was then ran their legal and environmental uh, department was in his 50s. He was an engineer and a lawyer. He was brilliant. And he was stupid. And his initial reaction was, look, this sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, don't bother your pretty little heads. Uh, just let's get on to something more serious. And I quite, it's one of, I mean, this is, this, is, this is one of those moments where you have a nanosecond in which to make up your mind. And I had to lit, this was in front of 70 people, including the president of the company. I had to literally lift him up by the collar of his uh, coat and take him off the stage and invite a much younger woman who I th thought would possibly do a better job uh, onto the stage. She did a brilliant job. She's now on the board uh, of, 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 of the company. But uh, you've got to be aware that where you do some of these things, there are risks, things can go wrong, but every so often when things do go wrong and the business, the company behave in the right way, it can jump things to a different level. And in the case of Nova Nordisk, uh, that's actually what happened. I'll be much shorter in the answers to other questions. But. Thank you. Next three questions. Here. Um, lady here on the end. Yeah. And at the back. Yeah. Wait, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Hi, I'm George from London. Very quick question. What happened to the guy who uh, made the initial response of this happens all the time? Is he still on the board now? Uh, he wasn't on the board then. He was a very senior um, executive within the company. He's now retired. Uh, sorry, and, and, and I, I don't tell that story with any sort of malevolence. I mean, I, I, I understand how people find themselves in these situations. In his worldview, that was the right thing to say. That, that, that was a perfectly intelligent thing for a technical person to say because these things did happen all the time. They happened to have been picked up that one time in the uh, media. But if you're involved in a political process then that's a really stupid thing to say. And, and I think what people like him had not realized, and this was true of many companies at that time, is that what had originally been, to some degree at his level, a, a technical legal uh, uh, process of dealing with the European Commission or whatever, uh, had become much more politicized. Sorry. Uh, in your presentation, you referenced 
companies like Nova Nordisk, um, Western companies that incorporate this triple yeah. bottom line approach. My question concerns companies that are based in the developing world, particularly yeah. India and China. How do you promote sustainability in these societies where millions are still living in poverty and where a no-holds-barred economic growth approach is still the order of the day? Thank you. And we'll just take the other one at the back. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Tristan. I work for a sustainability consultancy called uh, Carnstone. Mm. We do a lot of work with fast fashion retailers and um, often have the feeling that, um, forgive the unpleasant metaphor, that we're polishing turds. Because <laughs> I've not heard that one before, and it's really <laughs> unpleasant, but it'll stick, stick with me. <laughs> because it's only incremental change that we're working on, you know, supply chains yeah. throughout the developing world that are really quite unpleasant in their environmental impacts, and the whole business is built on buying more and very cheap clothing. Yeah. How do you take the conversation out of the kind of CSR manager um, arena and into the C-suite? What are the key elements to get heard? Um, perhaps not myself because I'm relatively in the, the middle of the company, but perhaps my boss. How do I get him into the, into the, the, the C-suite? Okay. Thank you. Let's talk it's, about it, it, changing the business model. Yep. It's a complicated question, but I'll do my best. I? Mm. Um, well, firstly, to this question of whether it's India or China or Russia or Brazil or whatever, um, how do you deal with all of this when there's no holds growth uh, as an objective? And, and my answer to that would be, firstly, it's extraordinarily difficult. If you try to do it at, in this country uh, during the similar period uh, of our uh, development, the Industrial Revolution or whatever, you'd have found it almost impossible to have uh, your voice heard. But I think things have changed. I think um, it's very difficult because when I go, for example, to India, I, 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 the, the people I'm dealing with, there, they almost self-described, they're a global caste. We don't like caste systems, but you look at who we are. We're people who travel internationally. We're people who are comfortable working with business. We're people who speak English. It, it, it's a very uh, particular world. But part of what we, as volunteers, we're trying to do in India is break through some of that and engage people who really go down to the level of it might be street children uh, or, or whatever. And I think the answer to your question has to be you've got to be opportunistic. You, you've got to be there on the ground. You've got to be seen to be part of, of the en environment. You can't be seen to be a, a foreign or an alien uh, body. Uh, sustainability as an organization had a presence in India until just very recently. We had one person there. We found it very difficult. I mean, we had some good corporate relationships, uh, but we found it very difficult to really engage in the way that we want to do. Oddly, I, you know, that thing's gone on hold for the moment, but I, I start to see in the corporate world in India uh, a growing interest not just in climate change, uh, and I think you know, that, that, that feels for a lot of Indian companies still quite distant, but issues like corruption are becoming really much more important uh, for Indian politicians, uh, for the Congress party. For, uh, and, and, and I think you've seen with the new, uh, I was about to say regime, but the new administration coming in in China, and the, the latest five-year plan, corruption is really up there in lights as something that they know that they have to deal with. And I think just as we were leaving, Sam, you talked about the Prime Minister of Pakistan being uh, arrested for corruption. That may or may not, it may be spurious, but I mean, if it's true, probably what's happening there is that there's this shuffling of a pack going on. 
I mean, corruption is everywhere in, 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 in many of these uh, societies. And I, I, for me, it's the number one issue. I think if we can't deal with that, many of the other things that we want to deal with uh, will not be addressed. And it's not just those countries. It's if you work in Indonesia, if you work in Turkey, if you work in Brazil, there's been a huge corruption scandal in Brazil recently. And just to be very clear, if you go back into the 1700s in this country, we were the most corrupt country in the world. And corruption is still here in many, many different forms. But people like William Wilberforce, who's remembered for his work on uh, anti-slavery, also set up something like 60 other NGOs, campaigns, and so on. And one of them was around uh, corruption. So even though it looks almost impossible at the moment to shift the needle on that one, I think it's doable. I think it has to be done. But I said earlier on, you've got to be opportunistic. You've got to be in there. Uh, When I'm in China, for example, I find um, a lot of interest in this agenda, partly because it's it's coming up and biting them uh, to some degree in the supply chain. But I also feel, uh, uh, you know, why should we listen to people uh, from outside? Why, why, uh, why isn't China doing this sort of stuff? And the answer is China isn't at the moment doing this sort of stuff, so it's no surprise that outsiders uh, are being drawn in. But it's, it's a re- you raise a really complex um, uh, question. And my hope is that LSE will be part of the solution uh, to that. And then back to that sort of question on, on the sportswear brands. Um, and fast-moving consumer goods and fashion and so on. It's hard to think of a sector that is more recalcitrant on the sorts of issues that we're talking about now than fashion. Because fashion is ephemeral. It's, it's something that has no uh, real value except uh, in the moment. It's designed for uh, disposability. You've had people like Catherine Hamnett and others who've been designers, but they're a tiny fraction of that whole um, uh, uh, market. So the question is, can I help uh, get you a career that doesn't involve spending 90% of your time polishing turds? Um, I wouldn't choose to work with just any old-fashioned company because, um, as I say, that that, that sector is uh, constitutionally skewed towards unsustainability. What I would do is look around for ways to build relationships with some of the people in that space who are starting to do interesting things. One of the reasons we're, we're working now with um, uh, Jochen Zeitz at, at, at PPR. But both of these questions are really monstrously difficult ones. They're, they're ones that we don't have the sort of drop-in black box uh, solution uh, to. And if I keep using the word opportunistic, it's simply that many of the things that we've done that have worked have not been things that we've particularly planned. They haven't equally been things that we've just absolutely done in the moment, that we've that worked them up over time. But um, let me keep thinking about that, and maybe about two years from now I might have a, an answer to both uh, of those questions. Thank you. Uh, next three questions. On the front row here, I will take one from the back there, okay, and here. Yeah. There's, an ur- there's an urgent one here on the corner. Which, where, where's this one? Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right, let's do those four, then. Please wait for the microphone. Uh, I thank I you. I don't want to override authority, but... <laughs> um, my name's David. I'm a research associate at LSE. Um, I assume that uh, incorporating these kind of principles is not profit-maximizing. If it was, everybody would be doing it. So I wonder if you do succeed in elevating the whole discussion to the senior level, as the chap at the back was saying... Uh, how do shareholders react? Uh, I'm assuming that shareholders are not just individuals with a conscience, but 
might also be uh, larger. So equity funds and other kind of actors that don't think as perhaps normal human beings. Can I just quickly uh, come back on that one? Because the reason why I raised the um, ageing trend is exactly the the, the fact that ageing populations, the the older groups will tend to have a greater um, holding of shares than than the younger people. Um, Their capacity to vote... Uh, uh, is tends to be higher. They tend to be m- more engaged in uh, uh, p- politics and, and, to some degree, uh, business. And I think part of our challenge is going to be offsetting that. And I think that there have been people who've been. I've worked in the socially responsible investment space now for over 25 years. I've worked with about seven different funds uh, during that period. And I think what we've seen is that movement progressively uh, going mainstream. But it isn't mainstream. And uh, you, know, you look at the really inflated figures that you get around the um, UN initiatives, financial initiatives in this space, and you, you might believe that 20 to 30 percent of financial markets are now moving in the right directions. They're not. Uh, and, and behind the scenes, there are private equity uh, people, there are sovereign wealth funds. There are, I mean, one, one of the things I often say is that you know, our movements uh, are very often like that old story about the drunk at night who is found under the lamppost. Uh, shuffling around looking for something, is asked what, and said their car keys. Is that where they lost the car keys? No, they were somewhere over up there in the dark. And I think what we very often do is obsess with brand name companies that we can see and not all of the other actors that are out there that we uh, can't see. And I think back to the question around um, China, uh, India, Saudi Arabia, these sorts of companies, those state-owned enterprises, Nigeria, are much bigger uh, actors than, than many of us um, might imagine. I think we really have to engage them in their own uh, uh, territories and on their own uh, terms to some degree, uh, at least uh, initially. But um, I, I think that companies that do try to shift away from uh, profit as the main measure of everything will be challenged. And we all know that CEOs have a shelf life, and that shelf life has been shrinking. And any uh, CEO who stands up like um, uh, Paul Pullman at Unilever and says, you know, I'm in it for the long term. But incidentally, look at um, the latest uh, issue of the Harvard Business Review. Top 100 CEOs in the, in the world. Who's number one? Well, it would have been... Uh, um, uh, oh, God, where's my brain? I'm still in India. Um, Steve Jobs. Um, uh, but Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos is number one. Why? Because he's gone for the long term. He's done things that look crazy in, 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 in the short term. He's been in a very unusual position. The, the, his investors can't throw him out or, or haven't been able to uh, in the past. Paul Pullman has said in public that if he has two bad quarters, he will be out on his ear. Well, I don't know whether that's actually true, but that's the world that he lives in. So I think the, the point you make is a very good one. Sorry, I, I, again, I will be trying to be a bit short. There's a microphone at the back, yeah? Yeah, hi. I work in another sector which has an inherent tendency towards the disposable healthcare. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you had any sort of ideas about the way that might be involved in movements towards sustainability, aside okay. from just the corporate world. Okay, thank you. And here... Hi, my name is Debbie. I work with Zero Zero, which is a design and strategy practice, and I also um, help manage a space called Hub Islington, which is a co-working space for social entrepreneurs. So it's a, my question is a point on, 
um, on the last thing you said about the disaggregation of social entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and they're definitely a, a you know, part of the movement towards solving this crisis or working towards it, but their disaggregation is both a plus in that when you're independent, you can prototype What ideas. do you mean by disaggregation? Because the social, entre social entrepreneurship, there's so many freelancers and small businesses and new people entering this field, their scale makes it possible for them to test out new ideas and have very dedicated missions, but then actually aggregating that movement and working together. What are positive ways or, or actual ways you've seen this work? Because okay. how do you get these people working together without taking away their independence? Thank, Thank you. you. And the over here, lady over here. Hi, um, my name's Christiana. I used to work in wealth management, and then mm. I kind of fell out of love with the whole kind of industry. And in February last year, I set up my own kind of financial innovation think tank. Well and we mm. do ethical financial advice, but we also do financial education. And I wondered what your th thoughts were on social impact investment and the whole idea that the financial space can change. Because if change is going to be measurable and sustainable, they have to engage the corporate world, particularly the financial sector, in a much more clear and ethical way. Okay, Thank well, there, there are people in the audience who know a lot more about social impact investment than I do, and maybe they'll be tempted to step up to the plate, but I'll come back to that. Let me sort of creep up on that um, issue. Let me start with the, 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 the health question. If I, if, I, if I think back to the early days where we worked with Novo Nordisk, the most recalcitrant part of that business in relation to this wider sustainability agenda uh, was the healthcare business because basically they said we do something that people urgently need they have diabetes or whatever it happens to be uh, we serve that need if we cause uh, a few uh, holes in the ozone uh, you know, uh, uh, layer or whatever it is along the way you know, th th that's uh, uh, necessary collateral damage um, what's been really interesting over the 20 years that we've seen that, that business is that the healthcare people have now taken the lead but they see it very differently they see the issue as now being one around access to medicine so for example when Andrew, Andrew Whitty as uh, CEO uh, the new CEO of uh, Klaxis Smith-Kline took over about three years ago or so my memory for time is a bit peculiar um, he almost immediately announced that GSK was going to radically cut the price of its drugs to 49 poorer countries around the world competitors thought he was crazy some people in his own boardroom thought he was uh, insane but what he was doing was responding to a felt social uh, need in different parts of the world and making the calculation I think that over time uh, public health care people in those countries and elsewhere would trust GSK more than they would otherwise have done. Well, we've just seen a, a, a controversy for GSK in, in, in the United States where I think the fine on them was $3 billion, so uh, complicated. But um, I think the healthcare care uh, uh, sector is going to become much more important, partly because of the ageing trend, partly because of the, 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 the poverty and pandemic risks that we've talked about uh, earlier on. But let me just take one tiny example of why I think it's going to become more important. If you look at uh, older people who tend to have higher cancer rates and tend now to be treated with much uh, more sophisticated therapies, you're suddenly, if you look at the water uh, uh, um, um, discharges from cities like London, you're starting to see spikes of what have previously been unseen uh, uh, chemicals. And those chemicals are coming from uh, some of the toxic 
uh, treatments that are being used to treat things like uh, cancer. And one of the social enterprises, to come back to another question, uh, that I find most exciting is healthcare without harm. And they have something like 500 uh, um, hospital uh, districts and networks and so on around the world now. And basically what they're trying to do is drive toxics out of healthcare. So to, to, to deliver healthcare uh, in an environmentally uh, friendly way. So healthcare, I think, is, 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 is central uh, in all of this. It started recalcitrant, uh, but is increasingly over time hopefully waking up. Question about social uh, enterprises, social entrepreneurs, and what we can do to boost what they do, to help them forward. I mean, part of what we do is to bring together really interesting, the leading edge of social uh, entrepreneurship with selected major companies. Now, we've done that also with NGOs, the sustainability for um, 25 years or so. And to start with, you know, this is like pulling matter and antimatter together. These were groups that really didn't want to be in the, ro- the same room uh, together. The difference with social, uh, social entrepreneurs is they're desperate to be linked up with the right sorts of people in business. And so one of the programs that we've been doing is with the Gen- German financial services company, uh, Allianz. Started off in Europe, went to North America, now also in Asia. And it involves uh, bringing social entrepreneurs into Allianz uh, exposing some of the Allianz fast-track executives to these people as part of their uh, management training. They do uh, Six Sigma quality training, and then they have this social innovation and social uh, entrepreneurship uh, stream uh, alongside that. But then taking selected executives from Allianz back into those social enterprises in places like Singapore or Brazil or wherever, and, and using their skill base to help build the systems and processes uh, for those social uh, enterprises. Now, I I, I think social entrepreneurs are in a very dangerous position. I mean, I'm dramatizing uh, partly for uh, effect, but I think one of the things that we've seen is a bunch of different wonderful people come into this space uh, with very large sums of money. And I think of Bill Gates, and I think Jeff Skoll, I think Pierre Omidya, and these sorts of people. And what they're doing is bringing to bear the notions of replication and scale and market leverage and so on, which worked for them really well uh, in the new economy. And nothing wrong with that. But I think that there is a danger that we expect these social entrepreneurs to scale at rates that are really very difficult uh, for them to uh, achieve. And I think there's a, there's a great danger there of uh, frustration, disillusion, uh, and so on. Back to this area of social uh, impact investment. I think the area of impact investment is immensely uh, exciting. It's one that we've been on fringes of. Some of my colleagues are, are more deeply uh, involved. I see mainstream financial institutions watching what is happening in the impact investment space with a growing amount of uh, interest. And what we may well see is cherry picking. So you think about Mohammed Yunus and Grameen and microfinance as a movement and that some of the big banks like Citi took elements of that microfinance model and, 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 and um, employed it in their own businesses. And if, if some of these big financial institutions do more of impact investment in a sensible way, that's great. But I think what we've got to be very careful to make sure is that uh, these big companies don't take little bits of this, then say that they've solved the uh, problem, which is a great temptation sometimes for them to do, and that we actually keep them um, uh, under 
uh, pressure. I'm sure there were other things that I was asked which I haven't um, properly addressed, but um, that's my best attempt. Um, Thank you. We have to finish at uh, 8 o'clock, so I would say there's um, time perhaps for two more questions. I haven't gone to the, this part of the audience here, to here, and maybe over here on the left. Sorry if I didn't include you in this. Uh, that was completely uh, random, unfair, and spurious, but we'll probably live with it. Hi, um, my name is Daniela Vega. I work for Sky. Um, mm. what, what do you think is, would be the most powerful contribution that the um, media and entertainment sector can make to sustainability? Thank you. And the uh, second one is over here. Hi, uh, Jamie McKeever. Um, you were keen through your talk to sort of separate sustainability from CSR. Um, and my concern with that was that in lots of the large organizations, um, putting all the emphasis on a single issue yeah. means that you have to put all the emphasis on a single issue to get people on board. I was wondering why you were so keen to separate them, given that it actually makes it much harder. Well, maybe I could start with that one. I mean, the question is, um, why am I trying to split out CSR and sustainability? I'm not trying to split them out to the point where that they are totally distinct. What I'm saying is that in, in the companies where we work, we see a very striking trend for people to say, we're doing CSR, therefore we're doing sustainability. And at the simplest level, our response would be, anything with that C at the front of it is actually about something that's corporate. So you're talking about a company, and perhaps it's a uh, value chain, but you're not talking about civil society. You're not talking necessarily about financial markets. You're not talking about public sector and government and all of that lot. So what you're doing is taking a very small slice uh, of this agenda. And this agenda is increasingly about systemic Dysfunctions. That's what uh, Pavan Sukhdev was talking about in the economics of um, ecosystems and biodiversity. That's what Nick Stern, Lord Stern, was talking about in the economics of uh, climate change. You're involved, I mean, here with the uh, Grantham uh, Institute. And, and, and um, Lord Stern talked about climate change being very likely the biggest single market failure in our history as a species. Not exact words, but pretty much. And um, that, I don't think, is in the minds of many people doing CSR. What they're talking about is citizenship. Great. They're talking about reporting. Fantastic. They're talking about stakeholder engagement. That's great too. Supply chain management. All of that's wonderful. But you could spend a lifetime, you could spend a hundred lifetimes on all of that and not materially affect the sorts of forces that then sort of turn up in uh, uh, New Orleans or turn up in New York or turn up in Bangladesh or, or the Philippines or whatever. I just hammer uh, uh, landscapes uh, flat. So all I'm doing is, or all we're trying to do, is just say, be very careful when you use language in this space. And particularly Michael Porter, don't present shared value as replacing everything else uh, in this space. Be very, very specific about what this particular set of tools is designed uh, to do. Media, really problematic, um, and it's always tempting to sort of pick out the friendly uh, ones, um, but I won't do that. 
I think one of the trends that we start to see is even magazines like Forbes in the United States, which used to be constitutionally opposed to anything in this space, is starting to do some really very intelligent reporting. You're starting to see it come in at the margins of uh, the Wall Street uh, Journal, which, again, I wouldn't put high on my list of um, uh, uh, um, media players uh, in a positive sense uh, in that, this space. I think we have a problem, and I think the ownership of the media without naming any particular names, has gone in very particular directions. It's like football clubs. Some of you will have seen Will Hutton's uh, piece in the, the, the Observer this weekend where he was talking about uh, Birmingham City Football Club, now owned by a person who's um, uh, in prison in China for a fairly massive money laundering um, exercise. So there's a cascade of impacts that comes back to a football club, which should have been run in the interest of fans and supporters and a community, but isn't that's been run in the interests of people who basically want, as, as Will Hutton discussed, to extract rent. And I think that the, the media have sometimes, you look at Fox News, you, you look at some of these areas where the coverage of news is getting shallower and shallower and more partisan, and that is deadly, deadly dangerous. At the same time, Paul Hawken, many of you know Paul Hawken, he did a book called Blessed Unrest. He compared civil society in all its disparate forms. He identified over a million NGOs around the world. Uh, it's now, I think, about three million. Talked about all of that activity as like a human immune system. So what we're developing around the world is um, a set of influences on government, on, on business, on financial markets. They're precariously weak uh, to date, but they're building all the time. The one thing I would say, and I said it to Paul when I first read his book, it's it's beautifully written. It's really, really elegant. The metaphor is phenomenally interesting. But I don't know whether any of you have a very uh, acute sense of how the immune system uh, works. It is a screaming nightmare. If you, have, you cut yourself, you have about nine levels of clotting and anti-clotting and clotting and anti-clotting that goes on. And so to the, 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 the media point, I think that's where we are. You've got these people who say, this is a problem, this isn't a problem, and it bashes back and forth to the point where if you're in uh, a board or a C-suite, you think, the hell with it. Let's leave it until five years, the term of my uh, successor as uh, CEO. And I, I think we need more authoritative reporting. We need to be more intelligent about what we view or read or where we look for information. And I, if, if I just take one uh, without favoritism, the... the, 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 the um, the, the paper that I read routinely now is the Financial Times. Uh, its coverage of these sorts of issues is uniformly fair. It's challenging, uh, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to read. Ten years ago, the FT wouldn't have been doing that. And I think over time, we'll see, hopefully, more and more media organizations doing something of the same. But happily, uh, we'll discuss that uh, later. Thank you all very much uh, for your time and questions. And just to say, if, if anyone wakes up screaming in the middle of the night, I wish they'd thrown something at me or asked a question. I might just to remind you, John at volance.com uh, will get to me. I may answer within a very short period of time, or Sam may stop me, but I'll do my best. Thank you all. Thank you, John.